0: Our last episode ended with the death of Stalin, felled by a massive stroke. Churchill leapt on this as an opportunity to achieve what was now his great post-war ambition, to bring the so-called Big Three, Britain, America and the Soviets, together in a summit. Just as the Big Three had sorted out the Second World War, surely they could now put their heads together and sort out the Cold War and Winston Churchill would be the man to make it happen. Sure, Eisenhower had been very cold on the idea, but now Stalin was gone, might the Soviets seem a bit less distasteful to the President? Shouldn't we give the new lads in the Kremlin a chance? Indeed, Churchill was so keen on the idea, and of him guessing all the glory for being the grand statesman who brought everyone together, that he wrote to Eisenhower, saying he would go to Moscow on a solitary pilgrimage if needed. And then, he announced the same idea to the House of Commons in May 1953, saying a summit should be arranged without long delay. The phrase he used in his letter to Eisenhower, solitary pilgrimage, sounds serious and solemn, but in reality, the idea sent shudders down the spines of Whitehall and the White House. The idea of Churchill setting off a from Moscow was dreadful because it would give the Russians the impression that the West was divided and therefore weak. Churchill caused a lot of trouble with this speech to the House and some of his cabinet even considered resignation. Indeed, many of them were already drumming their fingers on the table, looking at their watches, waiting for Churchill to finally retire. Would the grand old man never stand down? When would he hand over the reins to the favoured candidate, his foreign secretary, Anthony Eden? Well, that wouldn't be happening any time soon, because at the very moment Churchill was causing chaos... Poor old Eden was in Boston, recovering from surgery and very ill. So ill, in fact, that one newspaper considered writing up his obituary. So Churchill was going nowhere. At least, not until he had managed to pull off his idea of a Big Three summit to sort out the Cold War. As his statements had maybe given the the new Soviet leadership, the impression the West was divided, Eisenhower acted fast and proposed a meeting in Bermuda between America, Britain and France. Let's sit down and talk and let's be seen to be united. So no, Churchill can't retire now, not with the Bermuda summit pending and his foreign secretary gravely ill and then the coronation coming up next month. It's just not the right time. No way is anything stopping Big Winston. And so, when he suffered a severe stroke on the evening of 23rd June, everyone thought, well, that's it. He has to go now. His own doctor believed that Churchill would not even last the weekend. I don't mean last as Prime Minister, I mean he thought he would die. But you should have remembered he's dealing with Winston Churchill, not some ordinary bloke. And so Churchill managed to chair a cabinet meeting the next morning, although he was notably quieter than usual. Having got through that, he was then spirited away to Chartwell, his home in the Kent countryside, to begin a recovery. And yet, even then, he did not retire. <laughs> but Roy Jenkins, in his excellent biography says it would surely have been the end of his time in Downing Street if Anthony Eden had not been similarly incapacitated and 3,000 miles away. Jenkins tells us that as Churchill recovered at Chartwell, his speech was slurred, the left side of his face sagged and he had difficulty finding his mouth with his cigar. Standing up took a great effort and he could at first only manage to walk a few steps. But the British public weren't concerned, because the British public didn't know. The press agreed to keep it quiet. Roy Jenkins asks, why didn't he just retire at this point? I visited Chartwell this summer, and the place is beautiful. So why not retire to his paradise in the countryside to paint and write books and entertain? It sounds great. Indeed, Churchill was shortly to be awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. So retire to Chartwell and write great books. Write and relax and enjoy some peace. Roy Jenkins gives us three main reasons why he did not retire. One, he was not the sort to slip into a quiet life. This is Winston Churchill. He wants to be at the heart of the action. Two, he was worried about who would succeed him because Eden, as we've said, was also very ill. And then three, and I will quote directly from Jenkins' book here, outweighing all these other considerations, however, was his conviction that the world was in danger of nuclear destruction and his mounting belief that his last service might be to save it from such a fate as could no one else. Of course, Churchill's stroke meant that the Bermuda Conference, which Eisenhower proposed, had to be postponed by six months. It had been put back to December of 1953. And before he could get to Bermuda, Winston Churchill had to recover and then to have his first audience with the new queen to give a speech at the Conservative Party conference, and then he had the state opening of Parliament in November. There was a lot to be done before he could even think of Bermuda. But if Churchill was concealing his condition from the public, he couldn't lie to the new Queen. He met her at Windsor for their first audience in July 1953, and he confided to her that he wasn't sure if he could go on. He said he would use his speech at the upcoming party conference in Margate in October as his big test. If he could wow them at Margate, then he knew that he was back in the saddle. But those around him were worried. One of his favourite secretaries wrote, The PM has been in the depths of depression. He broods continually whether to give up or not. He's preparing a speech for the Margate Conference, but wonders how long he can be on his pins to deliver it. Well, his biographer, Andrew Roberts, says that Churchill did woe them at Margate. He gave a very good speech, an hour long, and so he passed the test he had set himself with flying colours. But he had passed it with a little bit of help. Before going on stage in Margate, his doctor had given him amphetamines. Churchill was up there on Benzedrine. And he did the same again before his first Prime Minister's questions since the stroke. He called the amphetamines Moran's after his doctor, Dr Moran. But perhaps Churchill's determination to get back to work, to be fit, and to drive forward his idea for a summit with the new Soviet leader, Malenkov, had been spurred by something else. His strong character, sure, his convictions, his determination, definitely, his Benzedrine, yeah, why not, but also the frightening news in August that the Soviets had acquired the hydrogen bomb. Now, it later transpired that this test in Kazakhstan, nicknamed Joe 4 by the Americans, was not a true hydrogen bomb. It was actually a a mix of fission and fusion technology, but nonetheless, its yield of 400 kilotons was enough to worry everyone. This was ten times as much as the previous test. The Soviets were obviously marching on in the arms race. The world had become more dangerous. And Churchill confronted this reality when he made a spectacular speech at the state opening of Parliament in November, three months later. One of his most memorable performances, said the Times, rising to heights of eloquence and wisdom in reflections on mankind's awful choice in this atomic age between supreme catastrophe and measureless reward. Now, all the books I've read say that this speech was an absolute knockout, one of his finest. So let's turn to Hansard to see exactly what he said. I'll quote the the nuclear section here in full. Churchill spoke of, quote, the rapid and ceaseless developments of atomic warfare and the hydrogen bomb. These fearful scientific discoveries cast their shadow on every thoughtful mind. But nevertheless, I believe that we are justified in feeling that there has been a diminution of tension and that the probabilities of another world war have diminished, or at least have become more remote. I say this in spite of the continual growth of weapons of destruction such as have never fallen before into the hands of human beings. Indeed, I have sometimes the odd thought that the annihilating character of these agencies may bring an utterly unforeseeable security to mankind. When I was a schoolboy, I was not good at arithmetic, but I have since heard it said that certain mathematical quantities, when they pass through infinity, change their signs from plus to minus, or the other way round. It may be that this rule may have a novel application, and that when the advance of destructive weapons enables everyone to kill everybody else, nobody will want to kill anyone at all. At any rate, it seems pretty safe to say that a war which begins by both sides suffering what they dread most, and that is undoubtedly the case at present, is less likely to occur than one which dangles the lurid prizes of former ages before ambitious eyes. I offer this comforting idea to the house, taking care to make it clear at the same time that our only hope can spring from untiring vigilance. So Churchill was offering us some hope. Maybe the hydrogen bomb is so dreadful that it will never be used. And maybe, now the Soviets have it too, it makes war less remote because, as he said, if everyone can kill everyone else, then maybe no one will kill anyone at all. Kevin Rain, in his book Churchill and the Bomb, points out that this speech is one of the first references, perhaps the very first, to MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. Churchill didn't use that term, of course, it hadn't yet been coined, but the principle is the same. So now that Churchill was restored to relative health, or as his secretary might have put it, back on his pins, it was time to reschedule that Bermuda meeting with Eisenhower. Always keen to reinforce and revel in the US-UK special relationship, Churchill was irritated that Eisenhower had insisted on inviting the French. Of course, Ike's idea was to show the Soviets that the big three Western powers were united. But Churchill was annoyed by it, referring to them as the bloody frogs. And on the flight to Bermuda, he read a novel called death to the French, and was photographed carrying it when he landed. And his snubs to the French don't end there. When he disembarked the plane, he dodged having to publicly shake hands with the French Prime Minister. Instead, he took a very obvious detour away from the French party, so that he could pat the head of a goat. A military band, on the scene at the airfield, had a goat as their mascot and Churchill used that goat as an excuse to avoid a public handshake with the French. So, let's get to the business of Bermuda. A very pleasant place to do business, it would seem. They met at the Mid-Ocean Club, which still exists, as a very posh golf club, standing on the seafront, and it now has the Churchill Bar and Grill and the Eden Room. I wonder if Churchill would be pleased to hear that they didn't name many club rooms after the French. So yes, the Eden Room, that, that reminds us that yes, Anthony Eden, the Foreign Secretary, was restored enough in his own health to accompany his boss to Bermuda. And I'm glad he was there, because from my reading, it seems that Eden was often on hand to keep Churchill in line with some quiet common sense and perhaps a few elbows in the ribs. We know from our previous episodes that Churchill didn't have a lot of confidence in the new Eisenhower administration. Sure, he respected Ike as a war hero, obviously, but as a president, he was less confident in his abilities. And as for Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, also present. Wow, Churchill loathed him. Roy Jenkins puts it best when he says, Churchill had a chemical repugnance for the man. Churchill said that he had a great big slab of a face and was always going on and on like a preacher, always with the same plodding message, We can't meet with the Russians, we can't meet with the Russians, we can't meet with the Russians. And as we know, this was Churchill's last big aim before he would allow himself to retire. To be the statesman who brought the big three back together at a summit to pull us all back from the brink of nuclear destruction. This was one of Churchill's aims for the Bermuda Conference, to pin down such a summit. But he was constantly frustrated by Dulles. Churchill's doctor, the one who dished out the Benzedrines, reported to Churchill as saying the following. It seems that everything is left to Dulles. It appears that the president is no more than a ventriloquist's doll. This fellow, Dulles, preaches like a Methodist minister, and his bloody text is always the same, that nothing but evil can come out of meeting with Malenkov. Dulles is a terrible handicap. Ten years ago, I could have dealt with him. Even as it is, I have not been defeated by this bastard. I have been humiliated by my own decay. So that he won't even give Dulles the satisfaction of having beat him. If he did ever get the best of Churchill in any meetings, it's because he was recovering from a severe stroke. Churchill's other goal, as always, was to restart nuclear cooperation between America and Britain. With this, he had more success in Bermuda. It had been revealed that the Americans would now share data from their recent atomic tests with Britain. But Kevin Rayne says that, like a nuclear Oliver Twist, Churchill asked for more. He told Eisenhower that the British were currently building the V-Force. That's the, the trio of British nuclear bombers. But we were doing so with no idea of the size or weight of American atomic bombs. If one day we are to carry these bombs to target, then come on Ike, we need some details here. We've spoken before at length on how Churchill's own key atomic advisor, Named the Prof, kept accusing his boss of living in atomic wonderland if he thought the Americans would dish out nukes to us. But Kevin Rain tells us that Eisenhower was gradually coming round to that line of thinking, telling his own advisers that if we want to take on a nuclear power using the most advanced weaponry, it would be foolish to expect our own allies to assist us, armed with bows and arrows. So Ike didn't commit himself there and then to dishing out any atomic bombs, but he did offer something else as a sweetener. The pesky McMahon Act was still in place, which made it illegal for America to share nuclear secrets with any foreign country, including us, which hurt. But at Bermuda, Eisenhower made it clear that he thought the McMahon Act was a dreadful idea and would be making moves to amend it. But if this made the British party happy, Ike immediately moved on to something to chill the blood. Why should there be such secrecy and fuss about us sharing atomic data with our allies when, after all, atomic bombs are nothing special? Atomic bombs, he argued, would soon come to be regarded as conventional weapons like any other. They are simply the latest thing in the constant development of weapons. They're nothing special. No particular awe or terror should be attached to them. Eisenhower wanted these things normalised and he held the, the worrying belief that you could use nukes on strictly military targets without the thing going nuts and escalating into World War Three, nuclear Armageddon. This American thinking about the bomb led to another worrying development at Bermuda. In July of 1953, the Korean War had ended in an armistice. It was now December. Would the peace hold? Eisenhower let it be known to Churchill and Eden that if the North Koreans and the Chinese broke the armistice, he was willing to use atomic bombs on their military targets. Records of this meeting were kept by the Americans, and Kevin Rain stresses that the American record is the only one we have of this meeting. And their record says that Churchill did not oppose this, and that he said that this meeting would count as America having consulted with the UK on atomic use. Well, this sounds very strange. We know that Churchill was, from the very outset, worried that the new Eisenhower administration meant war was more likely. And we know he was desperate for a Big Three summit to pull us back from nuclear tensions. So why would he meekly go along with American plans to nuke the Chinese? Kevin Rain says that Unless it was his advancing deafness and he didn't properly hear what was being discussed, well then it's, it's hard to understand. Why on earth did he agree to that? Quote, If, as Churchill maintained, a summit was needed to prevent the Cold War degenerating into hot war, why give advance sanction to the unleashing of the US atomic arsenal in ways that could start the very configuration his summitry was intended to avert. Quite simply, it's a puzzle. Anthony Eden and the rest of the British party were horrified at what their boss had just agreed to. Kevin Rain's book reminds us that Eden had been put in a similar situation already with Dulles, him again, when he visited London in October of that year. Dulles had told the Foreign Secretary that America would use atomic bombs to repel aggression wherever it is to their military advantage. Raiden tells us that Dulles seemed to think this chat with Eden counted as having consulted with the u k in advance, and that, having done so, the Americans now had a free hand to launch atomic bombers from East Anglian air bases. Eden strongly disagreed. But now here was Churchill seemingly waving it all through. It is indeed a puzzle. That evening, Eden set down his thoughts in a note to Churchill. There's no doubt, of course, he said that Britain would be strongly opposed to any break in the Korean armistice. But that doesn't mean we agree to going nuts on China with atomic bombs. I'm paraphrasing there, Uh, Eden didn't use the phrase going nuts on China. His note to Churchill also said that neither have we consented to atomic use by the Americans. Eisenhower might think that a war with China could be neatly contained geographically, but Eden reminded Churchill of the small matter of the Soviet Union. He said... If the Soviets came to the aid of their fellow communists in this situation, they would not be doing it on Chinese territory, but on European soil. We are the ones who will cop it, especially Britain, as we host American airbases. At the next day's meeting, and at a dinner the following evening, Anthony Eden made sure, as Kevin Rain puts it, that his boss was back on message. There was no prospect of Britain giving America a blank cheque to go ahead and nuke China with her consent. If the armistice is broken, then let us consult one another at the time. There is no advance consent. Well, thank goodness Eden was there. Eisenhower's response to this, to the the British putting their foot down, was quite vague. He said, certainly there should be consultation on the circumstances in which it may be used and the targets against which it should be employed. But as Kevin Rain says, that's, well, that's very vague because the circumstances, well, that could cover everything or nothing. But at least the British could leave Bermuda satisfied they had made themselves clear. But would that make a dent in American thinking if war actually broke out? So Bermuda had been largely a failure for Churchill. There were no hopes of a Big Three summit. Ike made it clear that nukes would eventually be seen as conventional weapons and He believed that you could use them in a war and keep it limited, limited geographically and limited to military targets. He offered vague promises that America would consult us if they wanted to use them. The only glimmer of light was that the hated McMahon Act might soon be on the way out. But everything else looked bleak. If the Korean armistice is broken, would the atomic bombs be let loose on China? How would the Soviets react and what hope would Britain have in such a conflict? Churchill stayed on in Bermuda for a few days for some rest and for some sunshine. You can hardly blame him, it was a miserable December back in London. And when he did return, it was to disappointment because his big plans, his grand plan for a summit to ease the Cold War had been yet again stamped on by Eisenhower. There was no prospect of it. So should he carry on in office if his big policy aim was impossible? What was the point? Could the the great man who had saved us from Nazism stay in power and be content to footer with pedestrian things like food prices and house-building initiatives? Where was the big grand scheme? In the new year he dined with Rab Butler and he confided to him I feel like an airplane at the end of its flight in the dusk with the petrol running out in search of a safe landing. The safe landing he wanted was to secure that Big Three summit. If he could achieve that and bring some ease to the nuclear tensions then he would happily retire. But for now There was no safe landing in sight. And if you want more podcasts, a reminder that there are extra episodes on my Patreon site. I added a new one last week. It's about a hoax nuclear leaflet, which was distributed in Dundee in 1986, containing fake and horrible instructions to slaughter and eat your pets if nuclear war comes. That unleashed a lot of anger towards the local council and the local government, of course, who were seen as being the issuers of this terrible instruction. You can find that and all the other episodes uh, at Patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, and let me thank my newest patron who joined yesterday, L. Venture. Thank you for listening.